Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special set of guests. I'll say the Twitter handles first, at must.marad, at ArjunBLJ. Guys, please introduce yourselves. You're both you know, thinkers, investors, operators in the space. Introduce yourselves and then say, why do you do what you do? Why have you spent so much time in this space? Great. I'll go first. So my name is Arjun. I am an engineer by way of background, worked as an engineer, found Bitcoin in probably right around 2012, 2013, wrote it off uh, as a gimmick or a fad, and then quickly found myself sort of getting sucked back in. I think that why I do what I do, which is invest in trade cryptocurrencies, as well as incubate new companies in the space, is because I really do believe that you know, we have the power, we have the, the ability to use the powers of technology for good. And I see a lot of what I see is a violation of individual liberties and a lack of protections thereof. And, you know, given my original political roots as a, as a, as a sort of classical liberal, so to speak, I see everything that we're, you know, the, this movement that's happening right now, whether it's Bitcoin, or you know, 3D printing guns as, as part of a larger cultural and political movement to protect individual liberties. And so I think that the the creation of a non-sovereign sound money system is it has the potential to be one of the most important things that happens in our lifetimes. So if I can uh, if I can participate in any small way, I'm I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. My name is Murad Mahmoudov. I am origin I originally come more sort of from the finance side. I lived in China for a year in 2013, sort of during that bubble. And that's where sort of Bitcoin got on my radar. Had a lot of friends who were sort of trading Bitcoin sort of in a peer-to-peer fashion. The, back then, the Chinese exchanges didn't have that much liquidity. So some of my American friends would essentially acquire Bitcoin from abroad or from elsewhere and then essentially sell it in China at a small premium. And I've essentially been sort of in the ecosystem here and there since, but I've been particularly active from 2016 onwards. I wholeheartedly agree with Arjun in the sense that I view money as a product and as a good, just like almost everything else. And I don't really think we have pure capitalism before we have competition among currencies. And I think cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular is a higher quality form of money for a variety of reasons. The biggest of which, in my view, is the fact that no single authority can print more beyond a certain point. And I think that this will have profound effects, both economic, but in my view, more importantly, cultural and social as well. Just like Arjun, I think... I, I'm extremely grateful to be living in this particular time period wh- when this massive sort of both wealth transfer, but also just a paradigm shift occurs. And I think that a, a world with in which 
sort of authorities lose sort of control or they're the centralized monopoly on on money and where money becomes the sort of global and decentralized thing for people to freely choose whichever network they want to participate in is going to live uh, is going to lead to a world of much greater freedom right and there's a getting into it but there's a few visions of of, of the world here one is you know the heart sort of bitcoin maximalist or shitcoin minimalist of you which is hey it's all about unsensible unseizable wealth and uh and then there's another view sort of like the chris dixon or ethereum view which is um sort of you know we're building the world's computer let's build a lot of like decentralized applications on top of it and let's you know wrest power away from from facebook or, or and some of these other sort of you know technological monopolies i are you you guys are more square in the, in the first camp i would you accept that assessment yes i would i think that the ethereum very much fits the silicon valley model of platforms in 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 terms of how it can grow and how applications can be built i think that the fundamentally and i don't want to speak for morad although i'm sure he'll plus one this i think both of us view what's happening with cryptocurrencies not necessarily as pure software or even pure money they're they're these very unique software money systems and i think that they require a very different paradigm for uh, for valuation and i think that their emergent properties can you, we can learn a lot more about them by studying economic history and by studying how historically you know central banks have shaped our views of money and how monies have emerged over time rather than thinking about ethereum as the next app store or looking at it as just another software platform that's going to grow and, and capture all of the venture capital dollars I definitely agree with that view, and uh, I would just add that Arjun and I actually came up with the term sort of fat money. We're going to get into that a little bit deeper later, but I definitely agree, and we view sort of cryptocurrencies as hybrid money softwares, but at the end of the day, we believe that it's important to view them as money first and software second. Because after all, they, they are cryptocurrencies and they aren't mere sort of software platforms. It's really important to sort of di to differentiate between the two sort of views. One is sort of blockchains as software platforms. And another one is blockchains as money or blockchains as monetary systems. And I guess if, if these things are used as store value, medium of exchange, and if, if there's wealth sort of moving in and out of these systems, in terms of sort of value accrual and valuations, they should definitely be perceived and analyzed as money first and the other and, and software second, in my view. To be clear, I think that blockchains, including Ethereum, have the potential to create societal value. I think that where I disagree with a lot of different approaches coming out of venture capital is that I squarely believe that the questions that are more interesting to ask is where and how value will be captured and not merely where value will be created. Because here, I really do think we're at a place where those two things can mean very, very different things. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's get into it. The, the, the working the title for this episode is called Good Kid Fat Money, a tribute to Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid <laughs> Mad City. <laughs> so Arjun, you, you wrote this great post for, for Token Daily, so maybe we could start there talking about how Silicon Valley views crypto networks, which we described a little bit. You know, as Wall Street views crypto networks, and then the uh, getting into your narrative, the fat money narrative. So maybe we'll start there. 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. There, I think I described it as the New York sort of Silicon Valley bifurcation, where there's two different approaches that people have taken to evaluating crypto networks. In New York, a lot of people have approached this like evaluating equities, where they're looking at monetary theory and they're trying to model the velocity of tokens in these sort of crypto networks, which are really just these small micro economies. And I think it's while some of it is interesting, and I think that they're they're touching on fundamental issues that I think we should be talking about, like the, the velocity of tokens in these microeconomies, I think that most of these models are pretty incomplete, if not you know entirely useless. I think on the other end of the spectrum in Silicon Valley, most of the most most of the approaches that people are taking are looking at, you know, and this has been called different things and, and has taken different iterations from fat protocols to the utility hypothesis. I think here people are looking at traditional software sort of KPIs, whether it's number of developers that are working on these platforms or daily active users of some of these products, um, or looking the, at the UI UX of some of the apps that people are building. And they're looking at those network indicators uh, in trying to see what platforms or protocols have momentum. I think that both of these viewpoints are mostly incomplete. I think that rather than you know looking at seeing what can become valuable and start and and moving from there, I think that most of these approaches are likely you know ex post facto where investors have made investments. And are then going back and trying to reason their way through, you know, what's really interesting rather than taking some sort of bottom up view. I think that I view all this and, and sort of at the crux of the Fat Money thesis is what Morad said earlier, where these are money first. These are pure play financial commodities. And I think that the way I view them is from the lens of a macro investor, where these, uh, these are just speculative currencies. And that what the market is largely doing right now is betting on what can emerge as a global, a single global monetary standard, which I, I do see as inevitable. And that market caps reflect, to me, merely uh, the probability that any given currency can take Bitcoin's place as the number one leader and eventually lead the charge for some sort of some form of crypto money to emerge. I think in the Fed money's lens, all tokens are cryptocurrencies because all tokens that are unpegged are merely competitive in this free market money competition. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that sort of the people in Silicon Valley are used to investing in like platforms and software companies as equity, but it's really important to know that crypto assets are monies. They aren't equities. So in spite of the number of apps that are being built on top of Ethereum or, or sort of the number of dApps, the number of developers, etc. These things, they don't directly make Ethereum, the, like Ether, the token, a better money. And I think there's a lot of examples in the space where essentially, and, and I think Ethereum is included in this, Ethereum, the platform, is okay. It's quite it's it's quite interesting. It's quite innovative, and I'm sure that it, it will create a lot of value, a lot of consumer value. But Ether, like ETH, the token, I think it's 
it's inferior to Bitcoin in, in, in the quality of money that it is and, and for the purposes of storing value. And so I agree with Arjun that the sort of the prices or, or rather the market caps of different crypto networks, they are and the whole the, the whole market is like a prediction market for which which one or, or, or a few coins will become sort of the long term money winner. But I think that even at its forty six billion dollar price tag, I think the market right now is overestimating the probability of Ethereum becoming that money winner. What do yeah. you think are the most important criteria in in money in the money winner? What in, in your mind, what are the most important characteristics? So I believe that a store of value needs to emerge or I, I believe that the store of value needs to sort of saturate in a major way before sort of these cryptocurrencies are going to be used as a widespread medium media of exchange and beyond. And I think so we need to ask ourselves what makes a good store of value. For me, sort of safety and psychological safety is really important for a store of value. And so when I look at the different cryptocurrencies in and, and try to assign probabilities to which ones are likely to become store of value winners, to me, it's all about security. And when I say security, it includes both sort of the cost, cost of attacking the network as well as the general quality of the code. And of course, since cryptocurrencies are, are money, it's really important to look at the monetary policy. I like to say that Bitcoin right now is the shelling point of the crypto market. And there's a whole community and there's a whole culture that has, that has arisen through or around its fixed supply. I genuinely believe that despite all the fancy bells and whistles that blockchains enable, the fact that nobody can print more of Bitcoin is the greatest innovation here. And that's the greatest, that's the greatest sort of social leap that Bitcoin will allow us to make. Because the way money works, especially under sort of centralized authorities, it's, it's a very easy way out of any kind of problem or, or a very easy way out to sort of dilute all the other holders and to sort of create new money at the click of a mouse and then sort of solve whatever problems the, the, the money creator can have at that point easily. And so to me, it's really important not just sort of to have a disinflationary monetary policy itself, but also the credibility of it. It's really important for the monetary policy to be hard to change. And now with Bitcoin in the last couple of years, we've seen how difficult it is to change other, even much smaller sort of aspects, I would say, compared to sort of the, the supply cap, such as, for example, the block size limit. And uh, if, if, if it took the Bitcoin community four to five years to sort of come to the end of that debate, then I believe, I don't want to say that sort of the Bitcoin's monetary policy is entirely unchangeable, but at this point, it's so, so difficult to change that it makes me, I, I'm very confident in, in, in Bitcoin's sort of supply curve relative to all other networks, which in my view are still unproven. Were you guys thrilled with that or happy with that outcome, the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash fork? Or if you can go back in time, what would you have done differently, if anything, if you had the power? I... I, yeah, if I had the power, I'm I'm glad I don't. Right, <laughs> so I think I think that for me, I I actually view subsets of, of communities hard forking away as a 
good thing, right? The Bitcoin, uh, the the Bitcoin Cash crowd, the B cashers, are um, largely, I think, misinformed and misaligned with the long term roadmap and vision that Bitcoiners have. I think what we're seeing now, um, I don't know how closely you're following Bitcoin Cash, but we're actually seeing a civil war in Bitcoin Cash itself right now, where there are two camps emerging, one camp siding with Jihan Wu of Bitmain, and the other siding with fake Satoshi Craig Wright. Um, so we have now another proposed fork into potentially Jihan coin and Craig coin, let's call it. What hard forks show and why I think the Bitcoin community is so resistant to hard fork unless absolutely needed is that hard forks remove, uh, hard forks splinter the community. And once a community is splintered the way Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin cashers were into, into a new community, I think that the propensity for further hard forks, I think, which, which devalue uh, the community around the network will, will continue to take place. I think that removing that subset of, the, of, of members from the community might have actually been a good thing because every money that's left that has, has now centered around Bitcoin the original Bitcoin chain, I think that this community is much stronger than it was before, is much more aligned for the future than it was before. And and that's my, my sort of uh, quick take on Bitcoin Cash's hard fork. I definitely agree with everything Arjun said. I would also add that I think sort of the UASF and what, what we saw with... Um, in August of last year, and subsequently with the, the SegWit2x drama, the user-activated soft fork, that whole phenomenon, I think was one of the most bullish things to ever happen to Bitcoin, because it showed that it's the users that are in control of the network and, and the node operators, rather than miners, rather than powerful stakeholders, such as exchanges, and a sort of other corporate players. And this is very, very important. And, and, and it really showed that at the end of the day, it's, it's the users who matter. And I'm, I'm really attracted to sort of Bitcoin's anarchic governance structure, where there's sort of no on-chain governance, sort of no sort of formalized processes. And this, I think, this type of governance really strengthens Bitcoin's value proposition, and more importantly, its monetary policy. Did you guys see a world where Bitcoin Cash could have taken off more? Because you know, the, some of the ideas behind it are compelling, but perhaps it didn't just didn't catch the right memes or right sort of religious fervor. Or, I don't. Know, could could you have seen it going differently? I don't think I don't think anything about it is compelling at all. <laughs> if you if you had to argue um, against yourself, I, <laughs> like you know. Their their vision. What's the steel man argument? Well, Eric, what Eric, what's what, what's any aspect that is compelling about their project? I, I think they would say that you know we want to use Bitcoin as as payment. We 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 want to like not not just have it as store value, but but you know really use it on a day to day basis. I don't I don't want to put words in their mouth. Well, um, see, a lot of a lot of people confuse medium of exchange with means of payment. And as I like to say, we aren't reinventing PayPal here. And even if we were, that's really quite boring. The, the idea here is to disrupt 
central banking and first and foremost the monetary unit itself you like the idea that money has to be spent in order for it or it has to be continuously in circulation for it to be money is like completely nonsensical the the comprehensive definition of money is that it's a store of value and a medium of exchange and you you can't really have one without the other i strongly disagree with the idea that medium of exchange precedes store of value it, it's really totally nonsensical to me and even if i thought that bitcoin cash is like the big winner why would i spend something that can still go a thousand x more in the future it makes no sense and for once bitcoin sort of it, it saturates its store of value potential people will start accepting it for their goods for their services and for their labor for payment to hold for many months into the future and not to simply accept it and then to immediately transfer into fiat or into something else like many merchants do today so th this idea that you sort of need to continuously spend money and only then that's going to become money i think that is literally the single most common and wrong misconception misconception and mistake in the in, in the entire crypto space and it frankly it just betrays a total misunderstanding of the emergence of money right this is what you know i i think it was menger that describes you know some commodities as as being more fit for wealth preservation than others if you if you look at you know the universe of altcoins either now or even historically there's dozens if not hundreds of altcoins that have all proposed some they're going you're going to use their coin as the medium of payment and i think that what we've seen is that uh is two things right so one which is that most of these cryptocurrencies are you know all cryptocurrencies uh, virtually in their in their design space are making meaningful trade-offs i think that the cryptocurrencies that are not advertising uh, accurately you know the trade-offs that they're making i think we find ourselves very much wondering what their long-term utility is going to be right the the trade-off space as i imagine it with bitcoin bitcoin cash uh, but also nano and xrp and a number of other potential payment tokens is across you know decentralization um, is across security, like Murad mentioned. There are trade-offs across throughput. There are trade-offs across privacy. The world is filled with altcoins that have all promised to take care of all of these trade-offs and prove valuable as a as a medium of payment. The one that comes to mind, uh, there was an old altcoin. This was one of the first ones, actually, uh, from the original uh, altcoin cycle. I think it was called Freycoin, and they actually had a demerge system because what they saw as a problem with bitcoin is that bitcoin encouraged the holding and saving of wealth um which which couldn't be a more disparate view of money than the one i have historically all coins have tried to promise a payments use case for a long time but i think that i find it both disingenuous and and in some cases downright inaccurate and wrong in the case of bitcoin cash i think that the trade-off that is not accurately marketed is that the trade-off is necessarily across the cost to run a full node, which I view as one of the most fundamental indicators in, in the long-term potential of any cryptocurrency.
And, you know, we, we even saw this last year with UASF, as Moran mentioned, what we conclusively learned then, uh, and people can make any criticisms of Bitcoin that they want, but what we saw then is that miners don't control Bitcoin, businesses don't control Bitcoin, users and full nodes control Bitcoin. And so I think that the, the, a lot of the marketing that I'm seeing around Bitcoin Cash and other payments currencies they're not properly ad- advertising the trade-offs um, that they're making. Nick Carter came out with a post the other day talking about visions of Bitcoin and how you know how the different narratives evolved over time. And Murad, you have this you have this great post outlining sort of four different you know visions around Bitcoin. Why don't you describe a little bit what you were what you were you know elaborating on in that post and and where you, your sympathies lie and how that's evolved over time? Sure. So back then we described sort of four general views. One was the classic Bitcoin as sort of roughly speaking, digital gold. And it's, it's a very sort of, it's a very, it's not a very accurate metaphor, but it's good enough to sort of convey the idea. I like to joke that Bitcoin is more akin to digital monetary nuclear weapons <laughs> than, it, than it is to gold. But yeah, that's the that? idea, essentially. I mean, I mean by that, that unlike other technologies, say an iPhone or say iOS versus Android, whatever. Or, or smartphones with, versus other phones. You can you can choose not to use iPhones and you can still thrive and everything is going to be okay. But Bitcoin, like Saifidi Namus talks about this quite a lot, it's more like gunpowder and similarly nuclear weapons. It's that if you, you need to get your hands on some, otherwise you are not going to be as strong as other people around you. I mean... It's, it's a very, I think it's going to be a very merciless and a very ruthless phenomenon. And as more and more wealth flows into Bitcoin and, 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 and is held in this sort of strong, hard, sound money, it will be risky not to hold any. And essentially, as time goes on, everybody is going to become a Bitcoin maximalist, whether they like it or not. Totally. As, as you were with the four narrative visions. Yes. Yeah, so the second vision is like the Bitcoin cash. I guess we need to start with the payments use case. Medium of exchange comes first. Money becomes money if it's used as money, although I totally disagree with that idea. That's essentially the second camp. The third camp is what's there's a, John Nash had this idea of ideal money. And essentially the idea is that fiat currencies won't collapse entirely. They will stay. Central banks will, Bitcoin will become the global reserve, but local fiat currencies will survive. And what they will do is they will essentially either peg themselves to Bitcoin all they all or they will be backed by Bitcoin, and essentially it's kind of like the sort of a neo gold standard. In this way, you can have a generally similar sort of purchasing power dynamics among fiat currencies around the world, similarly to what the European currencies were in the end of the 19th century. They were all just different weights of gold, essentially. They had very very similar uh, exchange rates because uh, they were fixed in different proportions to gold. And essentially, the idea is that there will still be some space for local monetary policies and for lo- local sort of fiscal and monetary controls by authorities, but Bitcoin nevertheless gets huge in that scenario. I'm not sure about that scenario. I think that fiat currencies will collapse entirely because Bitcoin, beyond beyond its fixed supply, it also allows for sort of unseizability and transferability and, and all these other sort of beneficial aspects. But that was sort of the, the third camp. The fourth camp, there, there, there is a group of people on Twitter, DeSantis, Mark Wilcox, 
a, a couple of their other friends, and they believe that the winning blockchain, uh, or rather a winning set of blockchains, will essentially become a global supercomputer, and essentially all computations will be done on the blockchain. It will become essentially a gigantic uh, version of Amazon Web Services. They consider that the winning blockchain or a set of blockchains will essentially be a black hole that not only is going to absorb a, a huge chunk of sort of the monetary value, but also of the market for computational services and everything sort of in that realm as well. The last camp is probably the most cryptic and the one that I, even despite having followed this for about a year, don't fully understand. But from what I can tell, it, it involves me having to read much more George Gilder and try a lot more ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have you talked about in this podcast how Silicon Valley views you know these things as equities, but they should be used as money, and then we can learn a lot more from sort of history of money, from economic history. Un- unpack that a little bit. What, what, what can what can people learn from 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 studying history of money, from studying economic history, and how does that relate to you know? how cryptocurrencies will will evolve over time. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the number one thing that we can learn from economic history is that if there exists an actor that can create more money, that they will, right? I think that that is sort of the most fundamental lesson that you can see time and time again in virtually every situation is that some form of money seems to emerge. It seems to be good and sound and backed. But if it's easy to make more of it, that people will make more of it. So I I think that any sort of discussion around what we can learn from history has to sort of start there. Well, there's, there's three things I'll say here. First of all, fiat currency, a currency that's not backed by any commodity and is rather decreed from above. And it has never emerged organically. It's always emerged by force, coercion. It's protected and backed by legal tenders, state decrees, debt extinguishing laws, state itself, borders, etc. Every time, fiat currency only managed to come into existence when it was first redeemable for gold, and only then it sort of bootstrapped itself off of genuine organic free will, voluntarily market-chosen commodity money. And only then sort of that peg was broken. But because of sort of the inertia and the momentum and those paper notes already being in circulation, coupled with all the other sort of legal sort of backbones that I just described, then it sort of kept on going. But it, fiat currency can never emerge organically. And now that's number one. Number two is Bitcoin clearly has its roots in in Austrian economics, in libertarian ideals, but most importantly, Bitcoin was certainly inspired by Nick Zabo's Bitgold, which itself obviously was inspired by gold. Now, when, 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 when the world or when, when the, the continent or a country is on a, a gold standard, then there is some limit to how much money can be printed. And even with fractional reserve banking, there's still, you can still only, you still have to back the system by a certain amount of gold. So essentially the power to print money, there's a cap on it and there's a ceiling. And if there's a cap to print money, then there's also a cap on essentially governmental power. 
And uh, in the late 19th century, the Europe had what's famously described as la belle époque, where essentially due to the gold standard, the it was essentially peak liberty in Europe. And nobody was really sort of bothering anyone else because wars were expensive to fight. They were, they were quick to finish because if you have to so essentially pay soldiers in scarce gold bricks rather than infinitely printable, i.e. stealable fiat money, then sort of the war effort and the torture effort, prison effort, all these things are a lot more expensive. And Bitcoin is much more similar to gold in that regard. Uh, Bitcoin is actually much stricter gold. So gold to this day, its supply is expanding by 1.5 to 1.7% per year, while uh, Bitcoin in 10 years, it's going to be 0.8% and going lower and lower. So it's, it's, it's much more disinflationary in that regard. And third, and the last thing I'll say is this, if there's free competition among monies, then the market would never naturally converge to something that expanding at 6% per year, like the US dollar. It's totally irrational. Why would you park billions of dollars of wealth somewhere which is essentially constantly getting expanded and your wealth is getting diluted? Game theoretically and organically, the market would much rather prefer something that is as close to, to fixed supply as possible because that is much greater quality of money and, it, and it's sort of a scarce monetary unit that is able to preserve your wealth into the future much better. Now, if you really delve deep into the function of money, Money is a non-productive good, but the purpose that it, that it has is reducing your anxiety about the future. And so typically what's chosen as money on the free market is the most liquid, the most saleable, the most recognizable, and the most marketable good. And so the value that money has, both as a medium of exchange and a store of value, is the fact that you can sort of get rid of it quickly and that you can sell it for other objects and other goods and services very quickly. So uh, I don't think that, uh, I think that just like we had the separation of church and state in the next 20, 30, in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to witness the separation of money and state because in the free market, a fixed supply currency or sort of a much more disinflationary currency will always win. To me, it's not a matter of if, it's a, it's a matter of when. Yeah. And you mentioned Austrian ec economics there. Give a quick background for the audience of, at a high level, sort of, Austrian economics, monetary economics, Keynesian economics, and how that relates to how there was the crypto world. In the context of currency, Austrian economists believe that money, just like I said earlier, it's a good and a product, just like all the other goods and products in the free market. And now Austrian economics, they believe in the power of free markets. They believe in the power of individual liberty in the power of small government and sort of not in, no intervention on behalf of government. Essentially, you, you don't really have free markets if you have only one form of money, or rather than you have a, an organization with a monopoly on money, and there's no other forms of money that are allowed to be used. If Bitcoin is a money that's not decreed from above, but rather that is chosen by the market organically, and money is a very important thing because it is one half of every single transaction that occurs. It is also in a George Gilder sense that Arjun talked about is an information system. So a currency that's inflationary, essentially the information system 
gets constantly distorted and the prices get constantly distorted. Austrians believe that because of sort of the governments as well as the commercial banks privilege in creating uh, this only one kind of money, it distorts not only prices, but it also distorts wealth and it distorts information signals to the entrepreneurs that is given in the economy. A fixed supply money is going to be a much better and a much more robust signaling system in the long term. I think the only thing that I would add is that it's very useful to try to understand, you know, sort of how economics developed over the 20th century and, and kind of the different ideological differences that emerged between the, the Austrian school and the sort of more mainstream neoclassical tradition. I think that originally the, the, the sort of Austrian school came up and, you know, in, in the early part of uh, the 20th century and sort of um, rejected a lot of the very heavy empirical methods uh, that people were using to study economics and, and the deep sort of value placed on statistical analysis. I think that Austrians believe very fundamentally that the business cycle, uh, which is this sort of alternating pattern of economic growth and recession, is actually a result of uh, central bank manipulation of interest rates. I think that the, the the sort of more neoclassical tradition, you know, comes at it very differently. I think that Keynesians believe that uh, the primary cause of recessions is actually sticky prices, uh, particularly wages. And, and Keynesians think that, you know, it, it hypothetically, if a worker is paid a certain amount, that they're actually never going to take a job that pays less than that, even if they're unemployed and, and not earning anything. And, to, and so in the event of a sort of exogenous shock, their, in, their labor is actually worth less than they're being paid in sort of inflation-adjusted terms. And, and the sort of logical sort of leap that a lot of Keynesians uh, and, and central bankers make is that the solution is actually to inflate the currency away. So the real value of wages that people are earning falls less than uh, less than the the amount uh, that they would otherwise make and so the and, and this is sort of this idea is broadly extended to the way that we think about aggregate supply and aggregate demand and so i think that austrian economics while it's been sort of shunned by the mainstream academic cognoscenti i think that you know one thing that's really exciting is that you know, Bitcoin is probably the most important thing that's come out of the libertarian tradition in the last 50 years, because instead of hypothesizing and lobbying and advocating and writing think pieces and pushing for something better, we just built it, right? I shouldn't say we, because we here may not have built it, but, you know, we, uh, we the movement have sort of pushed this forward. How is the field of economics going to change? Like in, in 10 years, are we going to be reading about, you know, fat money's thesis in textbooks and utility hypothesis? Like how, how does, how is crypto sort of changing the broader field of, of, of economics and, and where it's going? I would push back on the idea that the study of economics is even grounded 
in textbooks per se, particularly the macroeconomic tradition. I think that the uh, economics has been, you know, incredibly complicated and made difficult for people to understand. When I, I think that the Austrian approach and the view of business cycles is actually much more straightforward. I think that on a small level, we're already seeing the ways that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are changing people's way of thinking. It's changing people's time preference. It's changing the way that they think about saving and spending money because this consumer culture that's been created has largely been a result of inflationary money supply. The idea that you can't hold your wealth in cash and that you actually have to diversify it across equities and fixed income and real estate and in this basket of other holdings that you have to push it out into the world. So much more important than does Austrian economics make a resurgence, which I, I think it will, is the ways that this form of thinking is going to come mainstream um, and actually change people's perceptions on a micro level. Um, I think it was I think it was Keynes. It might have been Keynes uh, who who said something along the lines of, um, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> and I think that what that has led to is enormous short run thinking on the part of Keynesians. Um, so I think that the most important way that this is actually shaping economics is on a very granular level. It's changing the way people think about and, and view spending and saving money, uh, which I, I see as much more important than what a small group of academics think we should do about central bank policy. Well, I'll add that we're definitely not going to be reading about utility hypothesis in textbooks because utility hypothesis is total nonsense. But on a more serious note, I'll add that I think that Bitcoin will lead to a resurgence of Austrian thinking. I actually believe, quite controversially, that the reason that sort of Keynesians are or throughout the 20th century have been dominating academic thought in the realm of economics is because that kind of narratives benefited governments. Governments want us to believe that money has to be inflationary and you need to have constant inflation. So, and they, and in this sense that money has to sort of be centrally managed and under one control and they only need to be one money, etc. Otherwise there's going to be an economic collapse. However, I think we will see a return to deflationary economics inevitably. And the fact to me, the fact that deflation will lead to some kind of a collapse is is wrong throughout between the 16th century and the 19th century during the gold standard. Many, many prices and many, many time periods were were periods of deflationary prices. Yet the same periods had very fast and rapid economic growth and, and, and nothing horrendous happened during those times. So capitalism and technology are naturally deflationary phenomena. As we innovate and as we increase sort of our productive capacities, the cost to produce any sort of any object product, let alone software, becomes cheaper and cheaper. And so this fact combined with the fact that I believe we're going to end up with a monetary standard that is mildly deflationary will sort of lead to a resurgence to deflationary economics and with it sort of the Austrian tradition in general. Cool. I want to play this game called The Great Debunking, which may be actually be the title of this episode or, or Debunk City. Um, and I want to first start with, a lot of people have sort of this, this crazy idea that Bitcoin will be the MySpace 
of money. So say why that isn't true, but more importantly, is there a product that could potentially beat Bitcoin in the future? I think that that's it's something that a lot of investors have been focused on is, is there going to be a next Bitcoin? What is the next Bitcoin? Uh, and how can something, you know, achieve this, this sort of future, you know, monetary standard? I think that people are likely focused on the wrong things altogether. The criteria that Murad laid out earlier is something that I think is pretty good. That said, I don't view myself as a Bitcoin maximalist per se, although I am a money maximalist in the sense that I'm a maximalist for whatever crypto money emerges. I think that the few vectors where Bitcoin is weak are largely, you know, expose three things that I think could topple Bitcoin in its sort of monetary supremacy. The first is privacy and how much investors will value privacy in a few, in a form of future money. The second is uh, the volatility of Bitcoin and whether stability will be a very important characteristic in the short to medium term before Bitcoin achieves some sort of future monetization equilibrium. The, the third is around friction of distribution. Here, I imagine some sort of future hypothetical, you know, say, Ali coin or Facebook coin, which is distributed to hundreds of millions or billions of users all over the world where they can sort of frictionly, frictionlessly transact you know, as a form of digital fiat, so to speak, whether that will kill a lot of the momentum in Bitcoin. While I personally believe that all three are highly unlikely, I think I see these as the biggest potential threats to uh, Bitcoin's monetary supremacy. And, and by Alicoin, did you mean Alibaba coin? Yes. Yeah. Whether a company like Alibaba or a country like China getting involved. Yeah. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I would say Bitcoin is not the MySpace of cryptocurrencies. And once again, we need to understand that Bitcoin is Bitcoin is money and it's not equity. It's not a website and it's not a company and it's not a social media network. It's money. So <laughs> I think Bitcoin, Bitcoin is by far the strongest contender right now. It can be theoretically, it can be supplanted, but I find it as of today, with the information that we're operating with today, I find that increasingly unlikely. And for it to happen, it would require not just one, but like a set of computer science breakthroughs. And if you look at Bitcoin right now, it has the first mover advantage. It's the longest lasting. It has the greatest Lindy effect. It has uh, the greatest market capitalization, greatest liquidity. I would say the most credible monetary policy and scarcity, the greatest censorship resistance, greatest brand greatest durability, greatest network effects. And I can keep on going for, for, for much longer. But you, <laughs> What are the breakthroughs? You, you, <laughs> what, what, well, what would need to be true? Well, so first of all, I would put it this way. You know, in, in as much as I hate this cliche, but in typical startup land, there's this idea that for sort of a, a, a new entrant to supplant an incumbent, the product or the offering needs to be 10x better. Now, I consider Bitcoin to be 10x better than fiat for a variety of reasons but for somebody to supplant bitcoin it needs to be a full order of magnitude greater in all of these in all of these criteria that i just listed and more and i just find that extremely difficult the monetary policy is already ideal you can't really you can't really beat fixed supply it's the best one possible there's just no argument there now throughput 
maybe there's going to be other chains with faster throughput, but very, very frequently it comes at a risk of greater centralization as we've seen thus far. And I, I think Lightning Network and other sort of layer two advancements are quite promising and they will essentially offer much, much greater scalability than we have today. Maybe somebody will come up with sort of a blockchain or a blockchain-like system in which the scalability trilemma or the trade-off between decentralization security is sort of not is not is not and uh, and throughput is not broken and there's sort of no trade-offs to be made but even then uh, i'm not sure whether that's enough to supplant the incredible momentum and the incredible network effect that bitcoin has it's also important to note that bitcoin like isn't static it, it's constantly improving a lot of sort of people are missing the tremendous amounts of innovation that's happening in Bitcoin itself. And I would argue that the Bitcoin team, the Bitcoin core team, is probably the single most competent team in the entire space. Nobody's better. I mean, most half of them are legit cypherpunks who have been working on either cryptography or distributed systems or sort of previous incarnates of digital currency in the 90s and zeros for many, many years. I would actually argue that Bitcoin is one of the most technically advanced systems. If you really, really look at the innovation that's going on right now, it's really, really impressive. You believe that just because Ethereum you know, has more developers building on top of it, you think that doesn't really mean that much? Or that doesn't necessarily well, signify? Well, I, one protocol developer is worth a thousand dApp developers. I mean, developing dApps isn't as difficult as like working on working on protocol level, core level, C plus plus like software. It's it, that's a lot more complicated. There's probably fewer than 500 people in the world who can do that competently, and that's yet another reason why why supplanting Bitcoin is going to be difficult. There's, as I say, let's say there's 500 people who are of that kind of caliber in the entire world. I mean, a big chunk of them is already working either on Bitcoin or on other sort of digital currencies or blockchain systems. So as time goes on, supplanting Bitcoin is going to be increasingly difficult. I think that the other thing that sort of, you know, MySpace, Facebook comparisons don't get at, this was an excellent point uh, that our friend uh, Alex Ligel recently made. You know, which gets at Bitcoin as as a sort of psychosocial phenomena, where you know it's either Bitcoin emerges as a form of non-sovereign money or it's nothing. Because you know, what is to say that if Bitcoin is actually overtaken by some other form of crypto money, that there's a sort of security uh, that's given to holders of that coin that it won't get overtaken as well. I think that when it comes to wealth, especially when it comes to tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions or trillions of wealth, I think that you want to sleep well at night knowing that whatever you're holding as value is not going to get usurped by something else. You know, this is, we, we've seen this time and time again with monetary metals where people in the 18, uh, in the 19th century tried to hold their wealth in copper or in aluminum or even in silver near the end of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, and virtually all of them failed. I think that 
what people don't realize is that fundamentally, if we want this to work, we need Bitcoin to stay alive and well, because if it doesn't, you know, the whole the whole narrative sort of falls apart. As more and more people adopt Bitcoin, even adopt privacy coins, as Bitcoin does more privacy features, how are governments going to respond? And how, how, how is this all going to shake out? I think governments can't stop Bitcoin at this point. Maybe in 2011, 2012, maybe they could have. But at this point, it's really quite late. And something that people don't realize, they think that like even one country's government, it's not like this one group of people who are sitting like at a round table all in the same room, let alone like internationally. Governments don't really work together. Even during, even during World War II, they couldn't even, even the countries within an alliance with one another couldn't even agree on things. And that was like a life and death scenario, like an actual life and death scenario. Governments, it's, this is the very important thing. Governments and central banks, they are very adversarial. We still have currency wars going on right now. Countries competing to devalue their currencies at a slightly speedier rate than another currency to essentially boost exports, etc., etc. I don't think that governments will all come together and essentially all 200 countries that clamp on Bitcoin at the same time. In fact, I think that the governments that end up adopting Bitcoin, investing in Bitcoin, buying Bitcoin earlier than others will thrive, while governments that ban it or end up buying it late will really be hurt. I think that the biggest threat that governments can pose to Bitcoin right now is outlawing, like China attempted to do last year, outlawing fiat on-ramps into crypto by shutting down exchanges or making it really placing limits like the Indian government did. But when there's a will and there's a free market, people will find a way. You know, governments have shut down, uh, the Chinese government has supposedly shut down Bitcoin and banned Bitcoin several times now. But from where I sit, I still see very thriving order flow coming in from China. Chinese citizens are still trading Bitcoin over the counter, whether it's happening in person or in WeChat groups. So I think that, and, and we're seeing this on a smaller scale in Venezuela as well. I think that governments can go ahead and try to ban Bitcoin and try to make it really hard for citizens to buy it. But I think the idea that governments can somehow shut it down and end the party forever, I think, is a, is a little bit late. If you believe that privacy, whether through privacy coins like Zcash or Monero or additional privacy features within, within Bitcoin will, will be prominent, how do you suspect the future of taxes will shake out? I think governments in the long run will lose its ability to tax citizens. I think that we're going to see that over time as a, a sort of libertarian. I see no issue with that. I've always viewed tax as another form of theft. You know, while it can have some sort of useful social functions, I think that in the long run, if a form of crypto money does emerge and is thriving, uh, which I, I see as highly likely, I think, and if more importantly, if that is fully private and people can earn money directly in a form of private currency, I think that uh, governments will lose ability uh, to tax citizens. Morad actually had an excellent thread on Twitter sometime in the last year where he, he talked about why this could lead to a new sort of era of prosperity. Morad, do you want to expand on that? Yeah. So 
Eric, do you know the name of the Swiss prime minister? I don't. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think um, <laughs> um, Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin will lead to what, what, we, what we describe as the Swissification of society. So governments won't go away, but I think they'll get cut, like their power will get essentially cut in half. And I actually think that's like probably the optimal outcome. Uh, I don't want to live in personally in complete anarchy either, but about a, about a 60% reduction would be just quite right in my view. Well, first of all, inflation taxation will completely go away because you essentially can't print money. Taxes themselves will become harder because, I mean, privacy preserving like transactions are probably like unavoidable. They're inescapable at this point. So if I perform a service for you or if you hire me as a consultant and then you pay me in like a Zcash Shielder transaction or a Monero transaction, is, I mean, it's, it's going to get increasingly hard to tax, probably, in my view. However, taxes will remain. I think they will, they will shift to other things like maybe land or real estate or other things that are like non-digital and that are like hard to like escape completely. But it's important to note that essentially like Bitcoin makes exit costs, especially like monetary or banking ones, financial ones, much lower. And so it, like if, you, if you're familiar with the, the work, the sovereign individual, I think what's likely to happen is that governments are going to start to be more competitive amongst one another, mm. just like corporations to preserve as much innovation, as much capital, as much business activity, and as much entrepreneurs on their soil. So I actually think that this will lead to very, very good developments. And because intervention in itself is quite expensive and control is expensive. And if like that becomes more expensive than like it, it then if amount of intervention gets cut in half, then that means that all markets around the world become essentially more borderless, more global, and the markets become freer. So I think that actually this lack of regulation and, and this lack of control and this lack of coercion will lead to what I call hypercapitalism and a much greater prosperity. I think it will essentially take capitalism into overdrive. So I, like people who use like terms like post-capitalism or like say that capitalism is dead or whatever, I think they don't know what they're talking about because I, I actually think capitalism is just like re-emerging now and it's going to become, it's going to go into overdrive essentially. What we're seeing is as part of this shift that was described in the sovereign individual is that everything is moving to the world of cyberspace. And I know that term sounds crazy, but people are able, the, the leverage of a single individual is increasing year over year. We're already seeing that in the amount that small startup teams are able to do in Silicon Valley, what previously took a you know 200 person team in 2000 took a hundred person team in 2007, which takes a 10 or five person team now with AWS and all of the layers of abstraction that have been built. We're slowly converging on the possibility of many, many, many future businesses being able to be built, run entirely on the internet by one person. I think what we'll see as we see uh, this Swissification of the world is actually that governments will have to provide better incentives for citizens to move there, right? In a future world where we can spend our times in virtual reality and our geographic location doesn't matter as much, or in a future world where we're already plugged into the internet 24-7 and our physical location 
doesn't matter that much, where governments can provide significant incentives for individuals to move there. Right now, it might be tax savings. In the future, it might be something even bigger. I think that we'll start to see the the changes in the government incentive structure for citizens. Um, I think that we're, we're going, we're, this is going to be a very, very significant effect over the next 20 to 30 years. And I, what I do know for sure is that when we do have a draft where all the, all, all the smaller countries, the, you know, uh, the, the smaller nation states in the world are lobbying for position in this future uh, globalized structure amongst talented individuals, that Morad is definitely going to go in the first round of that draft. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say a person, and I want you guys to tell me where you disagree with them or have a where your difference of opinion lies. So first is Kyle and Tushar at, at MultiCoin Cap. Well, Kyle is a Bitcoin maximalist now. I've heard, right? <laughs> the I I think that where we largely disagree is that Kyle views. Uh, I I think you know he. I don't know for sure where Kyle stands on this because he's changed his stance many times in the past, um, although I find him an excellent sparring partner. But Kyle has uh, seized Bitcoin as totally lacking in innovation, given you know its, its resistance to hard fork to upgrade the network. I think he very famously said at one point late last year, along with his fellow GP, Vinny Lingam, that Bitcoin is dead. And so I, I think that that's probably the largest point of contention is that I think Kyle in the pursuit of other utility type networks like EOS has has given much less credence to uh, you know what what brought us all here and is is not considering all the innovation that that's going on in in the in Bitcoin land right now. Rob, would you add to that or did that cover it? Yeah, I mean we need to understand naturally that the way crypto hedge funds work. Whether consciously or subconsciously, you don't really want Bitcoin to win. Because if Bitcoin becomes global money, then I, I guess that's only like 100x, 200x return from here. And it's going to be like it's going to take a decade or two or more. But you can't really get into the Bitcoin presale. You can't really get in, <laughs> you can't really get a 80% discount on, on sort of. The Bitcoin's private placement at this point. So if you are a hedge fund manager or a venture capitalist, then it's, it, it's in your interest to promote these alternative theories. It's it, even Ethereum is more attractive to you. EOS more attractive to you because these networks are a lot cheaper right now. So if for some reason they overtake Bitcoin, then there is that 30 X or more that you can make on some of these smaller networks, or 20, 15 X or more than you can make in total as a return, as opposed to Bitcoin. If just hypothetically, if Bitcoin just like keeps going up and everything else just bleeds down, then hedge funds essentially have no reason to exist unless they're active traders. So like venture capitalist style buy and hold altcoin investing becomes pointless in the eyes of LPs if that is to occur. Now, I really like what Kyle has to say when he's talking about like technologies or blockchain scalability and software. And I really respect his views in that regard. And I really listen carefully. But 
I don't agree with him when it comes to sort of the monetary economics or monetary properties or in particular blockchains as money. And when it comes to money, Bitcoin is a lot better than Ethereum. It's a lot better than EOS and it's a lot better than anything else out there right now. Scalability, throughput, speed of transactions, etc. That's not even in the top seven, top eight of most important criteria that make a store of value. And so Bitcoin is, as I said, incredibly hard to disrupt in that regard. We are seeing Kyle increasingly come to the Bitcoin maximalist side. He's, I mean, money is about re reliability and money is about, I really agree with what Arjun said. It's not just about tech and it's not just about like money itself. It's also a psychological, social and cultural phenomenon. Even if something were to like be better than Bitcoin to be a store of value, it's not going to happen in the first year of its existence. Like that kind of disruption will take at least three, four, five years because like a store of value, especially in the digital realm, it's so like it's perceived to be by most people as so fragile that like that Lindy effect needs a lot of time to develop. So I don't see, I, I disagree with the utility hypothesis. I disagree that money, at least at this stage needs to be spent to be money. And I disagree with the fact that either Ethereum or EOS or any smart contracting platform is going to take over Bitcoin in the foreseeable future. For what it's worth, while Morad and I might seem extremist to some, I actually consider both of us as monetary or Bitcoin maximalists in the camp of moderates as far as crypto is concerned. On one end of the spectrum, you have the very progressive multi-coiners or poly-chainers that are very focused on this <laughs> ultra-tokenized, ultra-decentralized you know, future where we're tokenizing the world. And on the other more conservative end of the spectrum, you have the no-coiners, which I would consider the majority of the population. And we're somewhere in the middle where we think that their Bitcoin itself is very interesting. Their whatever emerges as crypto money is quite compelling. Um, and there are probably a handful of crypto native applications that I could see being really interesting. But, you know, I, I'm firmly in the moderate camp. Say more about those those applications. What are the best use cases for sort of crypto native apps or blockchains probably beyond money? Sure. I think that the reason why I disagree with the progressives in this space is that they have many flawed mental models, but I think amongst the, the many is that they view blockchains as a different kind of database, uh, essentially, because in some ways, you know, they, they are comparable, right? And, uh, but I think it's very dangerous to analogize that way. If we were forced to give an analogy, I don't think that thinking about a blockchain as a form of database makes sense. I think that the better analogy might be to think of a blockchain as a form of free speech, because rather than focusing the discussion around some sort of data representation and how that's permissioned and distributed, we can focus the discussion on censorability, which I view sort of as of being foremost importance. So what does that mean? That the only use cases of blockchains that I find compelling are uh, what I would describe as being crypto native, things that necessarily need to be uncensorable. And so there are interesting applications that I think are emerging or in prediction markets. 
are in sort of non-custodial trading. Uh, so decentralized exchanges, atomic swaps, settlement. I think collectibles could be interesting. I'm not convinced that they necessarily need uncensorability, but uh, resistance to chain is to change is, is sort of a context that I can see making sense there. And I see collectibles as, as being very important in the fabric of uh, human culture. And, and lastly, I think that uh, DAOs could potentially be very compelling as well. Not to be confused with the DAO, which was an absolute disaster, uh, but I think <laughs> hypothetical DAOs are quite interesting. I think that in the future, the distant sort of sovereign individual vision of the future that Moran laid out earlier, I think that we'll see a lot more DAOs actually. I think that my favorite example of a company that isn't quite a DAO, uh, but could function, uh, but has some of the pro- exhibits, some of the properties of a DAO is uh, something like Binance, where they bootstrapped the entire company on you know the, the growth of an initial illegal securities offering that they did, where they're distributing uh, cash flows sort of on-chain via their burning mechanism. The team is globally distributed. It's very difficult to shut down. I think that these types of businesses that have distributed teams that are structured in DAOs, that have transparent on-chain cash flows, where people can interact with each other through the internet, I, I think that those structures are interesting. And we'll see a lot more of those in the future. I think all of these are things that require some degree of uncensorability. Do we need, do most other applications of blockchains make sense? As of yet, I think they remain to be seen. I think that um, most people have pushed to decentralize everything because it's a trendy, buzzwordy thing to do. And, and they view you know, all of these applications as just moving to a different kind of database you know, while throwing in all of the other benefits. But I actually think that uh, most of these applications don't need blockchains. And uh, certainly, almost none of these applications need separate tokens. Uh, but I can see a world where there are some applications that emerge uh, that are used and, and are quite interesting. And for the crowd that's saying decentralize everything, all the things, what do they fundamentally not understand that decentralizing things hurts performance and you should only decentralize if, if you need uncensorability? Is, is that, is that a? I mean, fu- fundamentally moving from a centralized system to a decentralized system has significant efficiency trade-offs. I think that the camp that wants to decentralize everything has a number of potential hypothetical benefits that they can see. But in most cases, this sort of future decentralization of everything is, is actually, uh, it, it remains to be seen what sort of, uh, what, what sort of benefits are actually going to be derived. I, I could see, you know, there's a number of tokens that give you access to file storage or access to computational resources. I, I could see there being a market for these in the future. But, you know, in the interim, we're so far from actually having any of these deployed. And right now, their tokens serve at best like a, like a sort of gift card. And, you know, as we all know, when you want to receive, when you're growing up and you're receiving a gift from your aunt, you much prefer, I mean, the, the sort of Cadillac of gifts that you can get from your aunt is an Amex gift card because you can use it anywhere, right? It's highly liquid, it's saleable, it's widely accepted, and uh, you, you sort of know what you're getting. If your aunt were to give you a gift card to the Gap, you know, you should probably, you know, not only question your, your aunt's fashion choices, 
but you know, you'd also probably be a little bit disappointed because it's, uh, you know, quite useless uh, anywhere outside of the gap. It, it's not actually worth, you know, dollar for dollar what, you know, the, a, a similar Amex gift card would be worth. And so, you know, at best, these are all gift cards. At worst, you know, they're sort of disingenuous, illegal securities offerings that serve to benefit no one other than the issuers and early investors. So I'll add to that. Just like earlier, we said that, and this applies in my view to Ethereum, this applies to 0x, this applies to basic attention token, this applies to Filecoin, I would even go as far as saying, these are decent products, but I don't, but I think like the tokens either suck as money or are absolutely and utterly useless. I genuinely think that like all these tokens, almost without exception, were essentially unethical fundraising scams by the founders. And they essentially got rich in the midst of this like massive like ICO scam boom. And essentially this whole thing was an form of IQ arbitrage where <laughs> essentially people took advantage of this overvaluation of these like useless shit tokens and either funded their enterprises with it or just completely got rich and many of these products won't even get built yet but essentially they fund they found raised like they found raised for a currency that is going to be like a mini currency on their little network but like that's totally useless like in a in a world of of in the digital borderless realm money is likely to trend towards just one or maybe very a very very small number of like these massive money tokens and we don't need like each dap doesn't need its own token like do you want to walk around new york and then use a different form of currency in each store no like that makes no sense at all i can't even believe like it went like i can't even believe that this whole thing has gotten so out of proportion so like as i've said there's a lot of there's a lot of products that are okay but like the tokens are just like totally unnecessary eric if you're looking to hold your wealth in uh, the equivalent of gift cards to the gap, I've got a bridge to sell you. I'll also say that like, like I, I genuinely think like the word blockchain or blockchain technology is like the most overhyped term and concept and word like in the history of mankind. And like in 99, <laughs> in 99% of supposed quote unquote use cases, its usage isn't just unnecessary. It actually makes like the application like a lot worse, slower, and more expensive. I mean, Satoshi used this like this sort of blockchain structure in an extremely specific and deliberate sacrifice of a massive amount of speed, cost, and efficiency per transaction in order for us to be able to achieve sovereign level censorship resistance trustlessness, and greater social scalability. I mean, these things don't come for free. They come at a great cost. So to have this like advertising network on the blockchain, to have this like computer network on the blockchain, it makes no sense whatsoever. And so in my view, I am bearish on everything except Bitcoin 
and the two non-scam privacy coins that we have. To me, everything everything else is totally worthless as a as like a as an unpacked token. And essentially, the last thing I'll say is there are very very few non-scam use cases of blockchain technology. The biggest of which is by far, by several orders of magnitude, is money. Is the reinvention of money. And there are a couple of other ones. I think prediction markets in the end are going to be very legit. DAOs might have some promise. Digital collectibles, as Arjun talked about. But really, it all pales in comparison to money in terms of like investment returns and in terms of potential for socioeconomic change. I'm, I'm curious. You talked earlier about how you know it's important also is culture and, and psychology around, around these products. And I'm curious why... Why do you think something like blockchain technology as a meme took off? Was it because all the money surrounding it or, or a way for people to embrace, you know, like a way for people to, I don't know, ignore some of the more threatening elements of Bitcoin to them? Like, why did that take think, off the idea? I think the fact that blockchain technology took off as a meme in Silicon Valley is the biggest indicator that Silicon Valley is no longer the source of counterculture in, uh, in technology. Right. The real counterculture in technology, you know, what's what's left of it, I think, is primarily oriented around sort of crypto anarchy. The the blockchain technology meme that took off was largely opportunistic. I think it's asymptomatic of everything else that I view as an outsider to Silicon Valley. I live in New York City that I view as as part of this great technology bubble that we're seeing where. You know, previously, the most talented students in the world flocked to Wall Street and investment banking. Now, you know, this next generation, the most talented students, uh, the most opportunistic, capitalistic students are flocking to Silicon Valley, where Facebook is the new Goldman Sachs. I think that, you know, th this is exactly the it's it's nothing more than an indicator that Silicon Valley is largely oriented less around the original sort of counterculture movement of technology and much more now positioned as a, as a form of opportunistic greed behaviors. And, and the fact that, you know, we're seeing this Cambrian explosion of very poor quality um, and, and even more poorly thought out execution around blockchain technology is uh, is is the biggest indicator well i would say blockchain technology the term is a scam essentially tell me how you really feel the next the next the next <laughs> silicon valley the next silicon valley is cyberspace itself as arjun mentioned i would also add that i can't speak on behalf of everyone but it's really attractive like to, to, to like the millennial generation, at least the idea of cutting out middlemen is really attractive. So like after the great financial crisis, like the trust in banks and Wall Street as a whole has like plummeted and the distrust and doubt in those institutions have plummeted. If you look at sort of the recent surveys, the trust in governments around the world is like at an all time low. And um, in the last three or four years, I would say that the criticisms and the distrust towards Silicon Valley and these like centralized tech software, like behemoths such as Google, Facebook, et cetera, is also like at all time lows. These decentralized systems like Bitcoin and some of the stuff built on top of Ethereum as well, like it allows us essentially to bypass all these like centralized overlords. And like to a young person like myself, I think that's, that's very freeing. 
and very attractive. What about if someone like Chris Dixon, you know, who's not like a you know not like a young kid, and he's a very smart person, but he clearly you know dis- dis- disagrees with some of that. What what if or some of what we've been talking about here? If he was on this call, what what would your sort of best attempt at his thesis or his his rebuttal to to you? What might that be, and and where where do you guys fundamentally disagree? You think? I mean, I'll just quickly I'll just quickly say like if you look at every single one of his blog posts, like regarding decentralization, Web 3.0, blockchain tech, cryptocurrencies, etc. They rarely discuss like cryptocurrencies as money. And like this, nobody doubts Chris Dixon's power and talent as a venture capital investment in seed and series A equity investments and in, in startups. But to think of, to think that Ethereum will beat Bitcoin solely because like it's easier to build stuff on top of it. That's not enough. I mean, for price to go upwards, wealth needs to move into that asset. Sure. And wealth, wealth for wealth to move into that asset, uh, that asset needs to be the most, the one in which after putting a billion dollars there, you, you sleep better than others. And, Bitcoin already has a has a culture of extreme conservatism and extreme pragmatism and it's slow moving and it's reliable while Ethereum its future is built on promises and on a lot of promises on the guys to figure out the move to multi-step move to proof of stake for guys to figure out sharding for guys to figure out all these other things Bitcoin can essentially largely succeed as a neo gold the way it is while for ethereum to succeed there's a thousand like milestones and problems that they'll need to figure out not to mention the fact that they've changed their monetary policy several times now it's still uncertain it's still to be decided by it's sort of essentially centralized authority uh and um i would much rather park bitcoin there and like you just have sure. to think about where where billionaire is going to put money in like in this com- in the next ten years, where is money going to flow? I think money is going to flow into Bitcoin. I think money might flow into Monero or Zcash, but I don't think money might flow into Grin. But I don't think like Ethereum is like the best wealth preserver. And so Ethereum as a software platform, it's great, it's cool, it's innovative, and it also lends itself to a number of very interesting thought pieces about a decentralized future. But it's not the best money, and it's not the best goal. The I am a big fan of Crick Dixon myself. Let me try and present what I feel is, you know, would be the the opposite of Murad's argument presented against Bitcoin, Murad, and you can see how you would play off of that. I think that where you see uh, where you're saying Ethereum is built on promises, you know, Bitcoin also has many promises in its future. I think. It's largely uncertain how the Lightning Network will work. I, Chris Dixon, may not uh, may see Ethereum as the foundation of this future sort of fundraising and capital market structure that's emerging all over the world. In this view, where Ethereum does, or some other sort of smart contracting protocol does become the future backbone of the new financial architecture that's emerging. If Ethereum or one of these other protocols were to have similar fixed supply or immutable uh, monetary characteristics like Bitcoin, do you see the combination of 
utility and a protocol having all of the stored value characteristics of Bitcoin as being a threat to Bitcoin. Of course, like Ceteris Paribus, additional utility and additional functionality helps uh, any kind of blockchain or any kind of crypto network gain adoption and gain ground. However, like we have to compare like Bitcoin specifically and Ethereum specifically and their respective histories. So the history of Bitcoin that I'm watching, every major battle is making me more and more confident in Bitcoin's future. While Ethereum, the DAO hack was a disaster, the parity, constant parity, like the parity hack was a disaster. The nodes are, from what I can gather with the latest data, are getting increasingly centralized and the sort of the demands to run sort of full nodes on, on the network are getting increasingly demanding as well. There are trade-offs that you have to make, at least with the technology that we have thus far, between oh, what makes sort of for a better money and what makes for a better that platform. And like, like centralization leads to, or at least relatively higher centralization will lead to a better user experience for, for like DAP users. I mean, I don't want to use EOS as an example because I think it's complete garbage, but something that has something that's like a delegated proof of stake or like potentially Tezos or, or other platforms, Definity maybe we'll see. It will lead to greater sort of, I, I think it, it might compete with Ethereum very fiercely in terms of sort of smart contract UX and like DAP, DAP UX as well. And the things that the choices that Bitcoin has made, it's clearly not optimizing for any kind of like consumer level UX and instead going all in on security. So it's really difficult to go all in on security and decentralization and fix supply and also be like the best smart contracting DAP platform at the same time. And I think right now Ethereum is going to, in the next couple of years, find itself between a rock and a hard place where it's not the best in terms of being like a fixed supply neo gold like Bitcoin. And it's not the best for being the easiest, smoothest, fastest, highest transaction, cheapest transaction like that platform either. So it will really have to make some choices and it, it, it's really difficult. So you're both very bearish on Ethereum? Yes, I am not only bearish, intellectually bearish, as Kyle would describe it, I'm actually financially short Ethereum as well and have been uh, for several months. You guys talked a little bit earlier about sort of, not exactly warped incentives, but the incentives of venture capitalists and hedge fund managers to prefer altcoins or, or, or things other than Bitcoin that that you know they can sell to their LPs and and have more upside in. How, how do you envision the the future of sort of the you know crypto venture slash hedge uh, hedge fund landscape sort of playing out in the next few years? Like, will it be the same players dominating? Will you know what strategies will dominate? How do you see that playing out? So sure. I have a little, I have I have something to say on this matter actually. So like this is something that I've realized recently. Like people are increasingly realizing as we have discussed that essentially like mostly just store of value candidates will accrue value. And like in the end, there's only, as I like to say, there's only going to be like one to three winners. And at best, like four altcoins at best is going to be a power law distribution. And I increasingly believe that like really it's going to be winner take all. But in the end, there's likely to just be one, right? And so these cryptocurrencies, beyond everything that we've talked about, they're also like stories. And like the value is like purely subjective and their value exists almost entirely in our minds. 
So like the monetary premium embedded atop them and like imbued inside them is like purely psychosocial. It's purely cognitive. And it's almost like an ongoing hallucination of our collective unconscious. So like stories therefore matter a lot and like narratives matter a lot. And I think like not to mention that like different coins have like completely different cultures, philosophies, the, the average, the average political view, I would even say of like different, the community members are completely different. So like for Bitcoin, you see these like carnivorous, borderline, annoyingly intense and uncompromising, like right wing meat eaters. For like Ethereum, you have like more sort of like gentle, touchy feely, social justice, like positive vibe hippies, etc. But essentially, like, like you will see different hedge funds and different venture capital firms that push for like their own horses in the race. Like you already see like guys from placeholder like really push pushing decred as like with their like governance hypothesis. You will see like scalar capital like going all in, not going all in, but going heavily into privacy coins and shilling them really hard. Multicoin with their like obsession with smart contract platforms, Ethereum, EOS, Definity, etc. Polychain with their constant shilling of Tezos and Definity as well, etc., etc., etc. So like for better or worse, and for pure reasons or dark, like most of the venture capital firms and hedge funds, like they don't want Bitcoin to win, like obviously, like because like there's more gains to be had had elsewhere. And more gains to be had with Bitcoin being supplanted by another like large cap or premium altcoin, as we describe them. And I also think like these ma- these major investors like would deeply enjoy like exerting at least like minor control on the dominant money platform of the on the dominant money coin or like the platform coin on the future, and like all the privileges and like special exceptions that come with it in deals and all these other things. So like since stories are so important in this hyper speculative bootstrapping phase of like these stores of value or on like during the emergence of these neo monies cryptocurrencies become like horses at the Kentucky Derby and like each entity will push like their own narratives and trying to convince everyone from all the way up to pension funds like all the way down to like random non twitter trolls that like this is like the future store of value winner or like at least this premium like altcoin will be number two or will be number three. Right. I think like increasingly you will see more and more hedge funds will become more and more like Bitcoin maximalistic. But now, now they like it's getting harder to debate that Bitcoin is like the strongest money. Now I think like the debate is shifting more towards whether this market is going to be winner take all or winner take most. If it is indeed winner take all, then this is disastrous for a hedge fund business. Yeah, because then the only way then the only way to make money is through venture capital investing in like blockchain like companies or in investing in various like dApps or like layer two layer three solutions that will pop up and obviously like in my view like at least for the next three or four years like currencies like the top 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 three four currencies themselves will like outperform most venture capital investments in the space so now I think like the big narrative will like they'll they'll argue a lot and you'll see this in the next two, three years that like it's going to be winner take most and there's going to be four or five winners instead of just one. And like, I mean, it's possible. And so like they all say that like their alpha isn't able to like pick like the higher beta, like liquid premium altcoin investments or to be able to identify like the number two, number three, number four, whatever, or to I- be able to identify the privacy coin winner, etc. But Essentially, 
I can only pray that like sovereign wealth funds and big institutions that are, will, I believe, come into the space will do their own research. Though they'll probably like invest in like baskets of blue chips to start and then like reallocate as like narratives evolve. But I guess may the best men and women win. I think the only thing I would add is that technologists, you know, they hear the term hedge fund or crypto hedge fund and imagine something very different than what is reality. In reality, most crypto hedge funds, especially the well-known funds, although I don't want to name specific names, are run by new guys that I like very much and many who I consider friends, but they're not hedge funds uh, in the sort of uh, sense that most people imagine. They're actually just largely buy and hold type venture capital vehicles that have the optionality to liquidate their investments uh, and recycle capital accordingly. I think that as a result of this, you see this almost consistent seasonal narrative shifting where one season Ethereum will be the hottest, you know, the, the, the hottest token in the land. And then the next season, the big theme is decentralized exchange tokens. And then the season after, the big narrative shift is again in something else, right? Maybe a, a next generation blockchain, uh, a smart contract protocol. I think that the, um, you know, this sort of recurring selling of narratives that Morad mentioned is uh, this sort of core business of most crypto hedge funds. They're not active traders. They're just earlier, early investors who then sell the dream uh, and then sell their bags. Uh, on you know many many retail investors, I think that uh, this is something that I think we'll see exposed in this industry over the years, especially as many of these investments prove to be you know if not total frauds, largely uh, <laughs> poorly poorly diligenced. I think that as we see this sort of power law effect take place, what most funds will realize is that outside of venture investments that are building infrastructure. Uh, which historically, you know, to be clear, has not outperformed Bitcoin, right? Even the earliest investors in some of the biggest businesses in this space would not have outperformed had they just taken their seed investment and bought Bitcoin. Uh, although as Bitcoin uh, or, uh, you know, the emergent crypto money goes through the price discovery monetization process and potential returns are taken off the table, potential future returns, I think that we'll see a return to more robust investing in infrastructure, especially as we understand the landscape of, you know, what sort of native sort of Bitcoin native or crypto native financial tools need to exist uh, to bridge the world of uh, Wall Street and, and traditional finance uh, new money. That said, I don't see there being a very, very robust economy around investing in dApps I think one of my favorite things Morad has ever said is that, you know, blockchains don't create revenues, blockchains destroy revenues. I think that dApps where um, the fundamental value proposition is uh, removing rent-seeking behavior and, and middlemen and, and seeking the lowest, uh, the highest level of sort of disintermediation between third parties. Um, I think that that will eventually lead to a world where margins uh, uh you know that are taken get smaller and smaller making them largely poor investments uh, especially in the the open source culture that's very much alive yeah i definitely agree with that i, I would say investing in I, I generally think that investing 
in decentralized apps and decentralized startups will largely be unprofitable. And like value capture, quote unquote, is like insanely hard in the decentralized realm as blockchain tech is fundamentally about middlemen disintermediation and elimination of rent. And so it's like literally like just like Arjun said, it's blockchains don't create revenues, they destroy revenues. So like they literally destroy profits in most cases. So how can these projects like, protect, the, protect against that? Like what business model should make sense or what, what should they but, be doing? But, but, but you see, they can't, they really can't because in, in web 3.0, as we call it, like you don't have the closed, it's like the code isn't closed source as it was in the previous generation. And like everything is forkable. Everything's open source. Everything, like a lot of the things are visible on the blockchain. You don't really have like that many competitive moats. You don't really have intellectual property. You don't really have like all these contracts that people sign, etc. And so like if you charge, if, if your product is open source, charge rent that's too high and you immediately risk getting forked or re-architected by someone else charging a, a smaller price. It's essentially a race to the bottom. In the next couple of decades, it's going to be a race to the bottom. And like the only one exception to that is money. And that's why, like, that's why we are so focused on money to money coins. Talk more about how you see capital inflows happening in the space, both from US and, and global perspective. What, what's a misconception sure. you about that? Right? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that the, and again, not, I don't love analogies when it comes to technology. I think it's very hard to say, you know, are we 97? Are we 99? Are we, you know, one? with, you know, relative to, to Web 3.0 compared to the original dot-com bubble. But I think where uh, analogies are very useful is that cryptocurrencies are an emerging market, just like we've seen emerging markets in the past. And my favorite example that I like to use is the emergence of Asian markets um, as, econom- as the economies of China and South Korea and India started opening up to U.S. institutional investors. The reason why the analogy is so striking is that the cryptocurrency capital markets are actually developing in the same way. So historically, uh, in the mid-2000s, when these economies started to open up to foreign ownership, investing in them was very difficult because you know you couldn't have your uh, prime brokerage take custody of the securities that you were buying. And so you, know, you can check that off. You had the custody problem. It was very, very hard for U.S. investors, U.S. Uh, long short equity fund managers, to due diligence investments that were on the ground because they were so far away. It was hard to understand the local economies that these businesses were operating in. And so oftentimes what happened in that sort of first wave of capital allocation was that more savvy global macro fund managers were actually taking a portion of their fund and allocating it to outside fund managers who were on the ground, so to speak, in these countries uh, who could you know, better get a sense of the landscape. I would consider that analogous to Union Square Ventures or Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia allocating to various uh, crypto hedge funds across the board. You know, as foreign ownership uh, started to open up, uh, you saw a lot of the same uh, issues that you see in cryptocurrencies where the markets were very small relative to U.S. equity markets. They were highly illiquid. They had high concentration of insider ownership. They were largely, uh, and so uh, there was not a lot of quantitative trading going on in these markets. The markets were almost entirely driven by sort of news flow and other catalysts, um, just like you're seeing in 
the cryptocurrency space, um, many, many, many issuers were of very dubious quality. And most of those companies actually got washed out or no longer exist. If you want an interesting historical perspective on specifically that phenomena, there's a very excellent documentary called the China Hustle on, on many of the low quality construction companies, et cetera, that were being listed, you know, coming out of uh, some of these Asian countries. And so, you know, as we started to see the development of the Asian markets, um, you started to see uh, ETF offerings, countrywide ETFs start to come out, you know, which was one way for equity investors to get exposure. As these, as many of these companies started to grow, you actually started to see participation directly from larger institutional investors in the U.S. I think that we're um, along the development of capital markets. This is where we are in the cycle where, you know, we're seeing many ETF proposals filed. Uh, the one on the looming horizon is the VanEck uh, CBOE Bitcoin spot ETF, which I, I would say is likely, uh, is unlikely to uh, get approval. I think it'll likely be pushed. But, you know, you're seeing a number of ETF products file and come to attempt to come to market. You're starting to see widespread discussions amongst uh, institutional investors and capital allocators of all different sizes about seeing cryptocurrencies as a new emerging market or as a new asset class. You're starting to see allocation across to funds, um, and you're starting to see actual larger institutional investors go to their LPs and say, is there a way that we can own this directly? Um, and, and so direct ownership is opening up more. And so I think that we're right in that sort of phase of the development of the capital markets. The real inflows, I think, are yet to come. The next wave of inflows, I think, is still waiting very much on more products coming to market, uh, more financial products, that is, more custody uh, and, and sort of prime brokerage-like solutions coming to market, better market microstructure. That's one thing that's often not discussed is that the microstructure of the market itself is very immature. So as all of these things uh, start to come to market, and this is happening quickly, there are dozens of teams all over the world working on solving these immediate problems, dozens of teams in the U.S. Uh, I think that this will all this is accelerating much faster than the development of many other uh, emerging asset classes. This is changing. And I think that we'll start to see the, the downstream effects of this on larger capital allocation into the space over the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I had heard sort of some talk about basically, you know, institutions like Jane Street or Two Sigma will soon take Bitcoin way, way before they take Ethereum. There's other reasons we talked about this podcast, but also because of just Ethereum is a lot more regulatory complicated, airdrops and such. And, and Murad, you, you have a thesis that, you know, big institutions putting even just a small percentage of their net worth into, into, into Bitcoin as a, you know, uh, uncorrelated asset is what's really going to move, uh, move the space forward. Is that, is that fair? That's sort of one of the several investment theses or sort of things that will push Bitcoin price upwards. But yeah, I think that in the coming five to six years, you will see more and more both institutions, asset managers, as well as sort of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals putting 0.2 to 2% of their portfolios and assets into, I think they will put them into three to five crypto assets in a power law distribution with like most flows will probably go at least for the foreseeable future into the Bitcoin itself. And then sort of like the more sort of 
I guess either the, the more tech savvy or like the more the less risk averse ones will try to dabble in premium alts as well. Yeah. And the only thing I would push back on, Eric, is that you specifically said or, or sort of alluded to the idea of Bitcoin as a crisis alpha where, um, you know, it's this sort of uncorrelated asset. I think that it's really it's actually too early to tell there where, um, you know, largely I think Bitcoin ownership amongst the mainstream and, and certainly sort of institutional investor investment universe. Bitcoin is still very much grouped in the risk bucket with venture capital, where in the event of a widespread sort of risk off event, which I think will also come in the next six to 12 months, we'll actually see, uh, I think we'll see ownership away from Bitcoin in most sort of regular risk off recessions. Ed, in a sort of global sovereign debt currency crisis type scenario, I, I think that Bitcoin, you know, has the potential to go to the moon. Arjun, you mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you're, among other things, you're focused on, you know, trading and incubating. Can you describe a little bit of your philosophy behind both of them and, and you know, where you're focused there? Sure. I think that it's very, very hard for most people, including me, to kind of think about, you know, how market narratives can shift in the short to medium term, as well as what could potentially be very valuable many years out. And so it's actually a form of dissonance that I myself struggle with all the time. And so in terms of what I'm most interested in on the incubation side is along many of the axes that I described, my focus largely the last year on that front has been on mining. I think that mining for the over the next 10 years and beyond will continue to actually increase uh, in sort of value and importance as an industry. I think that in the future that I am envisioning, Bitmain, uh, which is already worth, uh, you know, and is reportedly valued at $14 billion in, uh, upcoming, in their upcoming Hong Kong IPO, has the potential to actually be one of the most important companies in the world. And so mining is something uh, that at much smaller scale I've been very focused on. One of the things that I've been exploring the last several months uh, and working with others on is designing new types of financial products that we can make markets in operating as a broker dealer that don't exist yet. So one example of this is something like uh, a hash rate, uh, something like a hash rate or a hash rate derivative contract. I think that uh, some of the miners that I've spoken to, especially as they get to larger scale, and as potential asymmetric upside leaves uh, holding Bitcoin, some of the concerns that they've mentioned is that they would actually like to move to a more traditional data center model where they're selling or leasing hash rate and manufacturing hardware rather than focusing the crux of their business on trying to manage risk on the balance sheet. And so, you know, this sparks all sorts of interesting, you know, ideas. What would a market for hash rate even look like? You know, in a, in a probabilistic sense, uh, selling hash rate is kind of like creating a, a sort of forward contract for Bitcoin, but with a whole number of sort of underlying dynamics, not only including Bitcoin price movement, but, you know, in, in anticipating sort of future market catalysts around hardware, looking at difficulty adjustments that come out as a result of that. And so, you know, pricing on a product like that could be really interesting. 
it sparks a, a world where we have a number of future financial products uh, like hash rate futures that could actually make uh, the and and could pr- enable a lot of the businesses in this in this industry to grow by allowing them to hedge out the risk or create more predictable revenues. Because ultimately, you know, I think the markets can enable this kind of innovation and the the purpose of most of these products um, that uh, we you know are exploring creating is largely premised on allowing businesses to make better decisions about the, about their future around the space and to to also open up and create a kind of more predictable financial market structure uh, around Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and so my sort of large area of focus uh, on the incubation side has been thinking through what kinds of new products are uniquely enabled uh, by the emergence of Bitcoin, what sorts of products could improve the predictability and functioning of businesses in the space, and what are new kinds of businesses that people could create in the future. And, and that's it's a really hard form of cognitive dissonance to separate from what's happening in the charts or, or sort of the, the ballet of narratives on a, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but it's something that is sort of very unique to cryptocurrency rather than any sort of traditional uh, technology sector. Uh, and it's something that I'm very grateful to be able to participate in. We, um, we talked a little bit about value accrual. We talked about you know, your, your, your fat money thesis. We talked about why you guys don't believe in the utility thesis. But Murad, I know you're doing a lot of thinking here. Maybe talk a little bit about some of the other theses and why why you think they don't hold any weight either, whether it's governance or fat protocol or stability or some of the other ones. Yeah. So general, just to, just to reiterate fat money thesis is we believe that money moves through being a scarce collectible first and then a store of value and then a medium of exchange and then a unit of account. And now like these aren't like, like separated perfectly, but it's more like gradual waves, but we generally believe that, Despite like money being all four at the same time, we generally believe that that's sort of the path that it has to take. The utility hypothesis: people believe that either like payments come first, or like a means of mean, like means of exchange come first, or like on the smart contracting side that like all the app all the DApps built on top of the currency like will essentially make it a medium of exchange, and then it eventually becomes a store of value. Stability hypothesis, like a lot of the stablecoin people, they believe that assuming that a stablecoin is actually stable, it's essentially immediately usable as a medium of exchange and a unit of account. And like as it gets bigger and more robust, like you can use it as a store of value as well, because it's essentially like pegged to the US dollar, for example, or or is stable. I think this like Assuming that stablecoins will actually be functional, which is a big risk and something yet to be proven in and of itself, but assuming they are actually stable, I actually think that that is at best a medium-term thesis. And in the long run, I mean, fixed supply currencies will simply win because they preserve value even better. There has been some talk of governance hypothesis lately. If you can um, have governance, you can have any future. <laughs> yeah. If you can have governance, you can have any future or, or so it goes. And essentially the idea here is that like networks with um, on-chain governance can be a lot more flexible and can be a lot nimbler 
And essentially, like, they don't have to spend, like, four years, like, deciding on every little one thing. There is some merit to that. But I think, like, that on-chain governance applies better to, like, dApps, DAOs, or, like, software platforms themselves, or, like, software in general, rather than NeoGold. Like, for, for a NeoGold, I would rather have, like, this extremely rigid, like, almost, like, technocratic, hard-to-change uh, system. For, like, for NeoGold, you don't want it to be, like... Or a democracy, or you don't want it to be mob rule, or actually, like, let's be honest, like, on-chain governance is essentially a ru- the rule of the rich, and now you have to decide, like, whether you want, like, the rule of the rich that you will have with the like, Tezos, that you will have with EOS, that you will probably have with Decred, or whether you will want, like, either her, the rule of the smart mixed with like no governance at all or mixed with like network governance p2p governance that they call it in bitcoin the counter argument to this is that oh they will say like look like this democracy is like different from like traditional politics because both the rich and the poor they want the same thing they want the price of like decred to go up (laughs) that's all they want but still like i still think that like you you don't like no governance is best governance for these for at least for neo gold and that's why I think like plutocracy is bad for these systems. Cool. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Last few questions. I'll bash them. Uh, bash them in one. So one is 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 crypto is crypto economics a thing? Two is are tokenized securities interesting? <laughs> and three is where do you guys disagree? Sure, I can go first. One crypto economics tokenomics uh all of these buzzwords are you know fundamentally just you know sort of very poorly thought out even uh you know there is a real field in economics uh mechanism design but it's much more technically and intellectually rigorous than a lot of the work that people are thinking through in tokenomics um which i see as more of a linkedin buzzword uh, that can bump your consulting rate up. Yeah, but uh, Vitalik by means it seriously, right? Yeah, I, I Vitalik. Uh, I mean, the, the, his, my opinion on him is an altogether different question. I think Vitalik is a very smart, uh, very hubristic, you know, uh, guy who is kind of like Icarus flying too close to the sun, kind of like Elizabeth Holmes promising us the moon. Yeah, I think that the that's a whole I I think that appealing to authority is is especially Vitalik is is not something that I am altogether fond of. It's actually one of the weak points I see of the Ethereum ecosystem is that uh, too much of it is centered around the idea of Vitalik, child prodigy leading us to salvation. But in in actuality, uh, no, tokenomics or, or crypto economics I think is largely very simple. Most of the designs that people have proposed, whether it's some sort of burn-in, mint, or, or token bonding curve mechanism, are not incredibly complex. There are some people doing interesting research here, but largely uh, I, I find the value accretion to be, people are largely putting the cart before the horse, so it's not something I spend too much time on. On the subject of tokenized securities, I actually do uh, think that tokenized securities, uh, aka digital stock certificates, which is the term that I prefer, are inevitable. I, I think that it doesn't make sense to uh, for us to swap pieces of paper held in the basement of the DTCC. That said, value creation with tokenized securities 
uh, is is a totally different question altogether. They are securities and equities by nature. They're businesses that have uh, cash flows where where we can that we can evaluate. I think that the value in focusing on tokenized securities will only come to a few audiences. The first audience is the holders of assets pre-tokenization, so pre-securitization. If you're holding illiquid assets that are then securitized, hypothetically, uh, and and many people have have uh, talked about this, uh, Ashwath Damodaran, uh, the the valuation god, NYU Stern professor, he's done a lot of research on this over the years, talking about a hypothetical 20 to 30% uh, liquidity premium that could exist in real estate. So hypothetically, I can imagine a world where if you hold one of these illiquid assets, tokenized securities would be very interesting. The second camp uh, that is profiting off tokenized securities is the actual issuers themselves. But this is just Wall Street 2.0. I think that most of the underwriters of tokenized securities are profiting off of tokenized securities by investing in and pricing the launch of tokenized securities advantageous to them so that they can capture some of the liquidity premium, if it were to exist, that's going to be pushed. And the third camp, I think, that will make a lot of money on tokenized securities are the companies that are building uh, infrastructure, whether it's ATS systems or protocol protocol specifications for tokenized securities and enabling the trading of tokenized securities. And that's a very sort of traditional you know, exchange infrastructure type business. As I'm not an underwriter, uh, not a holder of hard illiquid assets uh, and not building an infrastructure type business to enable uh, enable tokenized securities, I find them largely uninteresting intellectually and, and don't tend to focus on them. I think the one thing I would add with tokenized securities is that uh, many people seem to believe that there's this magical liquidity that is suddenly appears out of nowhere. Um, Howard Marks in, in a famous investment letter, I think from 2009 or 10, uh, he, he talked about how you know the, it's hard to uh, imagine a world where the liquidity in a basket of highly illiquid assets is somehow much more liquid than the individual liquidity of, of all of the composite parts. And so I think that the one th- I, I don't find it them particularly interesting, though I see them in, as inevitable. And I, I would issue a caveat emptor uh, to people looking at tokenized securities, especially those with unique financing models. I've seen a few dozen of these at this point over the last eight to nine months. And I have to say many of them are Wall Street 2.0, poorly structured financial instruments that are designed to hide the, the sort of complexity and, and value capture. Uh, by their issuers. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with uh, most of what Arjun said. I would just add that, like, quote unquote, thought leaders spewing hashtag tokenize the world are essentially caught up in literal nonsense. When when an Apple stock is put on the blockchain, like its fundamental nature, like the fundamental nature of Apple stock is not changed. Like it's just a digital representation. Like, it's merely given a little bit more liquidity, divisibility, and portability or transferability, but like through an architectural change on, on a new type of database. But like its fundamental nature isn't changed while like the reinvention money through cryptography serves like a, as a completely radical replacement for what we even know as money. So once again, like with tokenized securities, the securities don't change. You're just like 
put them on a new rail where you can like trade them, move them, etc. But the, like with with Bitcoin, you like Bitcoin gains at expense of everything else. Like generally zero sum for Bitcoin to win, fiat and gold like they they need to like lose. So Bitcoin is like literally designed to like overthrow the previous system and everything about it. Uh, it's the, a completely new paradigm. But oh, while oh. like yeah, while while tokenized. Tokenized securities is just uh, an add-on. The one thing I would add is uh, I actually do think of Binance Coin, BNB, as a tokenized security. I think it's the most, it's it's maybe not the most interesting. I would say it might be the only interesting tokenized security that I've seen. Um, it was an illegal securities offering, but that sort of new type of capital market structure that's totally accessible to anyone in the world and, and skirts sort of regulatory borders, capital controls, accreditation laws. I think that while illegal is hinting at the promise of what you know future borderless commerce and capital market structures could look like. So on if if you would consider Binance coin a tokenized security, uh, I would actually consider it a, a rather interesting case study in the future. Guys, congratulations. This is a Village Global first ever two hour plus podcast <laughs> for, the, for the diehards out there. Dyer Murad and Arjun Fans. Thank you so much. For sure, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Eric. It's been an awesome episode. Where can people find you guys online or and anything people should look out for, for for you guys upcoming? You can follow me on Twitter at Arjun DLJ. Lots of shit posting with occasional sort of learnings shared. You can my handle at gmail.com is the best place to reach me via email. I'm a hundred percent accessible. If you're working on something that covers any of the themes that I talked about that you think will be important in the future, please reach out. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Mast Stop Murat. Excellent. Thank you guys. Awesome.